Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas today announced the department's newest addition to counter misinformation, a disinformation governance board. Mayorkas told House lawmakers today his department is prepared for the surge of illegal immigrants that's expected after the lifting of Title 42. A former U.S. Marine is coming home. He was serving a nine-year sentence in Russia, but the country released him after reaching an agreement with the U.S. In a major escalation today, Russia shut off natural gas supply to two NATO countries. How did they respond, and what does it mean for the U.S.? Witnesses continue to take the stand in the Johnny Depp trial. But what are the chances of Depp or Amber Heard winning in court? NTD spoke with an attorney to find out. The Department of Homeland Security is now aiming to counteract fake news. During a congressional hearing today, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas testified that they've established a new disinformation governance board. Mayorkas says the board will combat threats to election and homeland security ahead of the midterm elections. Politico reports that the team will focus on news about immigration and Russia. Disinformation expert Nina Jankowitz will head the board as executive director. As the scheduled termination of Title 42 approaches, the Biden administration prepares for an expected surge of illegal immigrants. NTD's Chenny Wu tells us more. Under this administration, our department has been executing a comprehensive strategy to secure our borders and rebuild our immigration system. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, Biden's top border official, testified before Congress on Wednesday as some Republicans have called for his resignation or impeachment for his approach to illegal immigration. With the Title 42 public health order set to be lifted, we expect migration levels to increase as smugglers seek to take advantage of and profit from vulnerable migrants. The Biden administration released a plan Tuesday to deal with an increase in already high numbers of immigrants at the U.S.-Mexico border expected from the lifting of Title 42, a public health order that prevents people from seeking asylum. The plan focuses on six points, including surging resources to the border, speeding up processing of immigrants, increasing the use of fast-track deportations, building up capacity of aid groups, targeting smugglers, and seeking regional cooperation to deal with higher levels of immigration. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said on Wednesday that DHS intends to implement the plan before Title 42 is lifted. Immigrants have been expelled more than 1.8 million times under the rule, which was issued by the CDC under former President Trump. Many Republican and some Democratic lawmakers insist the policy should be kept in place. Unmentioned at the hearing was the fact that a court could soon order the government to reverse course and halt plans to lift Title 42 because of lawsuits filed by Republican-led states. Chenny Wu, NTD News. The Russian government today released former U.S. Marine Trevor Reed from jail. He was sent back in exchange for a Russian pilot held in the U.S. Reed was serving a nine-year sentence in Russia. He was charged in 2019 with assaulting two police officers who drove him to a Moscow police station. Reports said he was drunk at the time. 
Moscow swapped him for a Russian pilot, Konstantin Yaroshenko. He was serving a 20-year sentence in the U.S. after a conviction on drug charges. Russian diplomats called the prisoner swap the result of a lengthy negotiation process. In a statement, President Biden celebrated Reed's freedom. He said he could hear in, in the voices of his parents how much they missed him. Here is Reed's family reacting to the news. I'm going to try not to cry because he doesn't want me to cry. <laughs> Obviously, I'm going to cry a little bit and give him big hugs and um, just, you know, just give him hugs. And um, it'll be it's the four of us together again in, in a few years. So it's going to be great. I want to hug him and not let him go. Um, and, you know, I, I was in Russia for 14 months and I probably went to at least 20 different trial hearings where he's standing in a cage and they, they won't let me touch him, shake his hand or, or anything. So, uh, Obviously, uh, it'll, be, it'll be good to, to finally give my son a hug. Reed's family says his health deteriorated during his time in custody. He had been held in solitary confinement and in protest went on a hunger strike. His parents also said he did not receive proper medical care for tuberculosis. Russia denied the allegations last month, saying that Reed had no contact with anyone suffering from tuberculosis. Multiple other Americans remain in Russian custody, including WNBA star Brittany Griner. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says U.S. officials, both past and present, are under constant threat. Blinken answered questions before a Senate committee Tuesday about what is being done to protect U.S. officials. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. Senator Ted Cruz started off by asking Secretary of State Antony Blinken about the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or IRGC, which is a branch of the Iranian Armed Forces. Is it true that the IRGC is actively trying to murder former senior officials of the United States? I'm not sure what I can say in, uh, in an open setting, but let me say generically that there is uh, an ongoing threat uh, against um, uh, American officials, both present and, uh, and past. Cruz then said there have been multiple public reports that the United States asked Iran to promise not to murder a former Secretary of State, and they refused. Cruz then pressured Blinken on this very issue. Did you ask them, stop trying to murder the former Secretary of State, and did they sit there and tell you, no, we're going to keep trying to murder him? One of the strong messages we send to them is they need to stop targeting our people, period. And here, here are the facts, as I mentioned a, a few minutes ago. But did they tell you no? Um, again, I'm not going to characterize what they said. They know what they would need to do to address this problem. Blinken said the threat to U.S. officials has gone up since the United States got out of the Iranian nuclear deal and designated the IRGC as a foreign terrorist organization. Jason Perry, NTD News. The standoff between Russia and Europe just saw another escalation. Moscow is halting gas supply to two NATO countries and vowing to do the same to others. NTD's Iris Tao has more. Gazprom, Russia's state gas company, is cutting off natural gas supply to Poland and Bulgaria. The move comes as Moscow warns it may be cutting off more countries that refuse to pay for gas in rubles. And European leaders are decrying an energy blackmail targeting nations that support Ukraine. The Kremlin uses fossil fuels to try to blackmail us. 
This is something the European Commission has been preparing for. Poland and Bulgaria both have been supporting sanctions on Russia and aiding Ukraine's defense. They say they have been preparing for the cutoff with alternative gas supplies. They're also receiving gas from EU neighbors. The era of Russian fossil fuel in Europe is coming to an end. Europe is moving forward on energy issues. The White House also says is working with partners on getting gas to Europe, while calling Russia's move weaponizing energy supplies that we had predicted. In addition, we can't allow uh, Russia to control uh, Europe's uh, energy and oil supplies. Congressman Pete Stauber told NTD that this is another reminder for the Biden administration to ensure U.S. energy independence. The focus should be on changing the policy, having the will as the United States of America to be energy dominant. Meanwhile, although Poland and Bulgaria may be able to cope, other EU nations, in particular Germany and Italy, will be more sorely tested if Russia cuts off their supplies. Both nations have said they don't intend to pay for gas in rubles, defying Putin's demand. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Russia says it's destroyed an arms depot in Ukraine. It housed weapons from the United States and Europe. This after Russia's foreign minister accused NATO of engaging in a proxy war with Russia by supplying weapons to Kyiv. NTD's Jessica Beatty reports. Russia's defense ministry said Wednesday its caliber missiles struck an arms depot in Ukraine's Zaporizhia region, housing weapons from the United States and European countries. NTD's unable to independently confirm the Russian claim. Russian missiles also struck and damaged a strategic bridge in the Odessa region Tuesday, according to Odessa's city council. Ukrainian police released this video showing the damage. This bridge is a key connection between the Odessa region south and the rest of Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russian leader Vladimir Putin met with UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres in Moscow Tuesday. Putin said Russia and Ukraine are continuing negotiations online and he hopes for positive results. But he warned that they have to figure out territorial issues first. We can't sign security guarantees without deciding upon the territorial issues relating to Crimea, Sevastopol and the Donbass republics. Russia annexed Crimea from Ukraine in 2014. And Moscow recognized the independence of the Donbass People's Republics in February. Earlier Tuesday, the U.N. chief also met with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Antonio Guterres said his objective is to save lives and reduce suffering. It is my deep conviction that the sooner we end this war, the better for the people of Ukraine, for the people of the Russian Federation and those far beyond. Guterres proposed creating a group to bring together Russia, Ukraine and the UN to open safe corridors for civilians. Meanwhile, the U.S. State Department Tuesday criticized Russia's Lavrov for his comments about the potential of a nuclear war. I think loose talk of nuclear weapons, nuclear escalation, is especially irresponsible. It is the height of irresponsibility. All this as U.S. Embassy personnel start traveling to Ukraine again to re-establish the American embassy there. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Political leaders and former Democratic presidents honored former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright at her funeral service in Washington, D.C. today. Albright passed away last month at the age of 84. NTD's Allison Lee has the details. 
Attendees at Madeleine Albright's funeral at the Washington National Cathedral include President Biden, former Presidents Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Albright was America's first female Secretary of State, serving under the Clinton administration from 1997 to 2001. She was a great Secretary of State. She did 20 other things I could mention. But the most important thing is God gave her a fine mind, a wealth of experience for anybody who was willing to pay attention to it. Albright was a major champion of NATO's expansion into former Soviet countries. Biden's remarks highlight her contributions. In the 20th and 21st century, freedom had no greater champion than Madeleine Corbel Albright, Anne, Alice, Katie. Your mom was a force, a force of nature. More than 1,400 people attended the service. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. As more witnesses continue to take the stand in the Johnny Depp trial, many are left wondering how likely it is that Depp or Amber Heard will win in court. NTD's Jason Perry spoke with an attorney to get an analysis of the case. Two individuals that are professionals, some of the best in the world at doing that. Crenar Camilli, who is an attorney at Camilli and Capo, explained that there are two major parts that Johnny Depp's legal team needs to handle. But here, what we're dealing with, at least at this point of the discussion, is that Johnny Depp needs to prove that he has never been a domestic abuser towards Amber Heard, and uh, and that's going to be um, that's going to be his hurdle and. If he can do that, somehow he can make it through that and, and prove that that's the case, then we would at that point get into the damages. That's when they would determine how much it cost Johnny Depp financially because he was defamed. Camille also mentioned that it's very unlikely that Depp will win his lawsuit and even more unlikely that Heard will win her countersuit. And what makes this case even more interesting is that the most important piece of evidence being the witnesses the witnesses themselves here are professionals at pretending to be whatever they want to be. He said witnesses are usually nervous, and that wasn't the case with Depp. I mean, we're talking about two individuals who were capable of convincing the world of being mermaids, mobsters, and pirates. So um, I think that's going to play a significant role in this, and it makes it very interesting. We may not um, ultimately find out who is... Uh, who was in fact defaming the other, but I think by the end of this, we're gonna find out maybe who was the uh, better actor. Amber Heard has yet to take the stand. Jason Perry, NTD News. Up next, Google is stopping its inclusive language warnings after just a month. An expert tells us what impact inclusive language features can have on society. And an NBA legend demanding an apology for his portrayal in a series. The response from HBO and what a former MVP has to say. That and more coming up. Navigating a world of economic madness, you need to have the right guide. What did today's decisions mean for your tomorrow? We ask why, what's the alternative? Uncover the deeper reasons and the hidden influences and highlight the real opportunities for profit. At Entity Business, 
We connect the dots for you. Good evening. An update to a story we reported on last week. Federal prosecutors threatened New York to take over the city's jail system by implementing an outside authority. Now, this week, the commissioner of New York City's Department of Corrections was ordered to attend a hearing with a federal judge. They talked about solutions to the ongoing problem in New York City jails, especially Rikers Island. Mayor Eric Adams says the problem at Rikers Island have been going on for decades. At this week's hearing, the commissioner promised solutions within the next few days. The judge granted the city three weeks to come up with a plan on how to turn around the infamous Rikers Island prison complex. The commissioner says he doesn't need three weeks to take action. Google Docs is getting rid of its so-called inclusive language warnings. The feature was put in place just last month, but came under criticism for its suggested word replacements. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more. Google Docs has been warning users to change their choice of words when using the app. Some of the words users were prompted to change are mankind, landlord, and even motherboard, which is a part of a computer. The pop-ups looked like this, labeled inclusive warning, suggesting stay-at-home spouse instead of housewife. Vice editors reportedly tested the feature by pasting the transcript of an interview with a former Ku Klux Klan leader. The script contained a racial slur and parts where they talked about hunting black people. Google Docs apparently didn't issue any warnings in that case. When they pasted a speech from President John F. Kennedy, the app reportedly suggested changing the word mankind to humankind. It focused mostly on gender terms, which reminds this expert of political correctness. The inclusive language that Google is ped peddling is the very essence of political correctness. Alex Newman is a senior journalist, author and member of the Birch Society, which aims to support and defend the Constitution. He says gender terms exist for a reason and the differences between men and women are not political opinions. These are facts of nature, and this effort to manipulate our language to eliminate those differences and to even transcend the fact that there are differences, I think is very disturbing. It's incredibly dangerous for society, and it further erodes the nuclear family, which is fundamental to a civilized society. In a statement to Vice, Google said the technology is still evolving and is not yet or may never be perfect. Ariane Pastar, NTD News, New York. Google parent Alphabet's shares, though, fell almost 4% today. It didn't do too well in the first quarter. Its revenues were higher than in the same quarter last year, but higher expenses led to a drop in profit. Also, it missed analysts' expectations, especially with YouTube. While it made more money off YouTube ads this quarter, in comparison with the same quarter last year, analysts expected much better, $7.5 billion in revenue instead of the far lower $6.8 billion. How much weight do we put on analyst expectations? Up for debate. With Google's stock sliding down, it announced a $70 billion share buyback, something companies usually do when they think they're undervalued. Twitter is responding to mass fluctuations in followers for high-profile accounts following Elon Musk's takeover. The platform says the fluctuations are organic and not automated. Twitter users noticed dramatic increases in followers of high-profile conservative accounts. 
Florida Governor Ron DeSantis gained nearly 100,000 followers after Musk's takeover announcement on Tuesday. High-profile Democrats also lost followers. Former President Barack Obama lost around 300,000 followers on the same day. Twitter didn't say exactly how many accounts were closed or deactivated. The company said, while we continue to take action on accounts that violate our spam policy, which can affect follower counts, these fluctuations appear to be largely a result of an increase in new account creation and deactivation. Now that Elon Musk is acquiring Twitter, the world is asking an important question. Will the Chinese Communist Party gain influence over the company through Musk? NTD's Don Ma explores the issue. There are definitely arguments for both sides. Those who say Beijing may gain influence over Twitter point to Musk's Tesla business in China. China is one of the biggest markets for Tesla. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos raised the question on Twitter, did the Chinese government just gain a bit of leverage over the town square? The town square being Twitter. And Nat Elon Beck, professor of law at Case Western Reserve University, says there are definitely concerns. Well, I think he's definitely in a spot where he has a conflict of interest. I think he's very vulnerable. Whether, it's co whether he's compromised or not, time will tell. But we do know that he has a lot of skin in the game, as we say, in, in China. But China expert David Zhang argues that Musk's businesses in China won't affect Twitter. I think the Twitter issue and the his China business is two separate issues that's essentially being conflated into one. I think his Twitter acquisition is a real opportunity for him to show that he is for free speech. When it's a free speech platform, you're going up against the very core of the principles of communism, which is censorship, which is not allowing people to talk. Does the fact that Musk seems to be going against the core principles of communism mean that he won't let Beijing influence Twitter? Alan Beck suggests we wait and see. I'm not only going to take a look at his words. Let's take a look at his actions, and time will tell. Let's take a look at his actions and see. I think that actions speak louder than words. Jeff Bezos has since walked back on his question on whether Musk's Twitter will be influenced by China. He wrote on Twitter, My own answer to this question is probably not. The more likely outcome in this regard is complexity in China for Tesla rather than censorship at Twitter. Musk is extremely good at navigating this kind of complexity. Don Ma, NTD News. The Made in China trend may be on the downswing. Some Chinese tech companies are turning to U.S. manufacturers for supplies instead. The shift results from U.S. sanctions on Chinese telecom gear maker Huawei. NTD Business News talked to an expert to find out more, and NTD's Sean Marshall has that story. Some of the main players in Chinese smartphone markets are now heavily dependent on American chips. One of them is Honor X30 smartphone. A recent dismantling of the phone shows nearly 40% of its manufacturing costs goes to U.S. companies. The brand was separated from Huawei in 2020 to evade U.S. sanctions, which have cut off Huawei from U.S. technology. The dismantling was done by Fomalhaut Techno Solutions, an analysis lab for mobile equipment. The parts report found that core components, including its 5G chipset, now come from American companies Qualcomm and Micron instead of Chinese suppliers. I spoke with Vice President of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation about why a company might make such a huge switch to U.S.-made parts. 
Uh, it shows that the United States continues to lead the world in semiconductor chipset development, especially for high-end 5G smartphone devices. And it shows that um, you know, in China is struggling to develop uh, its own state-of-the-art electronics. U.S. components in the Chinese smartphone Honors X30 climbed to 39% from just 10% in 2020. Ezel also said it's important that American companies are able to sell into Chinese markets. Every dollar that a U.S. vendor makes in China uh, selling semiconductors is a dollar that a Chinese competitor is not making, right? So it makes our firms more competitive. And more importantly, it gives our firms revenues they need to reinvest in future generations of innovative technologies. Two other fast-growing Chinese smartphone manufacturers, Xiaomi and Oppo, have also turned to U.S. suppliers for key components. Sean Marshall, NTD News. And in the NFL, the Washington Commanders are now under investigation by the Attorney General in Virginia for financial improprieties. The announcement comes just a couple weeks after Congress sent a letter to the Federal Trade Commission saying it found evidence the team stole money from the NFL as well as season ticket holders. Citing testimony from ex-employees, the letter from Congress alleged the team withheld refundable deposits from fans by making them difficult to obtain. In addition, the team allegedly kept two sets of books, with the one shown to the NFL containing underreported ticket revenue. NFL teams are required to share 40% of their home ticket sales with the other teams. The commanders denied the allegations in a letter to the FTC. NBA Hall of Famer Jerry West demanded a retraction and an apology last week for his portrayal in the HBO series Winning Time. And HBO has responded by calling their series a dramatization. NTD's Dave Martin has more. I don't care who you are. Jerry West's lawyers allege Winning Time falsely and cruelly portrays Mr. West as an out-of-control, intoxicated rageaholic and say it bears no resemblance to him. The show airs on Sundays and is based on Jeff Perlman's book, Showtime, Magic, Kareem, Riley, and the Los Angeles Lakers dynasty of the 1980s. West lawyers say much of the anger shown by West in this series was not in the book and didn't happen, and allege the creators acted with legal malice. Their letter includes statements from former players such as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who said West never broke golf clubs or threw his trophy through the window. Other former players have also echoed those sentiments. I don't like how they're depicting my good friend Jerry West, but other than that, I think it's very, very interesting. Yeah, Jerry was always kind and compassionate to me. I've never seen him have those so-called meltdowns. West lawyers also say the series gives viewers a false impression that West was incompetent and didn't want Magic Johnson. West was twice named the NBA's Executive of the Year. HBO responded by saying it's not a documentary. Instead, they called it a dramatization based on extensive factual research and reliable sourcing. The show was recently renewed for a second season. Dave Martin, NTD News. The Chicago Bulls will be without both starting guards tonight as they try to stave off elimination by the Milwaukee Bucks. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Bulls guards Zach Levine and Alex Caruso will both miss tonight's Game 5 in Milwaukee as Chicago faces a 3-1 deficit. Caruso is in the concussion protocol after being elbowed in the head in Game 4, while Levine is in the league's COVID-19 protocol after experiencing symptoms Tuesday morning. The defending champion Bucks, meanwhile, have posted back-to-back double-digit wins in Chicago to push the Bulls to the brink of elimination. 
Only 13 teams in NBA history have come back from a 3-1 deficit. In San Francisco, the Warriors are also up 3-1 on the Nuggets and look to close out at home. Two-time MVP Steph Curry has quickly ramped up to speed, leading the team in scoring the last three games, despite missing the final four weeks of the regular season with a foot injury. The Nuggets will again rely on reigning MVP Nikola Jokic to carry the load. Jokic has led the team in scoring, rebounding, and assists this series, just as he did in the regular season. Dave Martin, NTD News. Coming up, the Los Angeles Sheriff wants to get to the bottom of a stolen video that was leaked to a reporter. The question is, can he investigate the reporter? And in Southern California's Orange County, a group of officials and survivors of violent crime came together to remember loved ones lost. Friends and family told their heartbreaking stories. Los Angeles Sheriff is launching a criminal investigation into a stolen video that was leaked to the LA Times. And he plans to question the reporter. Experts say the reporter is protected by the First Amendment. NTD's Arlene Richards has the story. Morning, everyone. Sheriff Alex Villanueva announced in a press conference Monday that he and other agencies are launching an investigation into a stolen video. Remember, what was taken from the department was an active criminal case. The video, which the LA Times published after it was leaked to a reporter, shows a deputy kneeling on an inmate. The sheriff says the department was actively investigating the incident when the video went missing. He said the investigation is not about the leak, but involves an obstruction of justice. He identified three individuals he wants to talk to. So here are the three individuals that we want to know a lot about. This person said he gave it to this person. This person is actually authorized to receive the completed investigation. But somehow it landed in the hands of the third person, the reporter from the LA Times. So now the question First Amendment experts Roy Gutterman and Gene Polisinski agree that the reporter doesn't have to answer the sheriff's questions. Under California law, reporters are protected from revealing their sources. I, I would say this is definitely a, a First Amendment issue. Reporters have a right to report on public affairs and, and use public records. An innocent third party uh, cannot be prevented from use of material, even if that material was obtained without authorization by somebody else. Both experts agree there's no violation of the First Amendment to ask the reporter questions in the furtherance of an investigation. Sheriff Villanueva clarified in a tweet that he is not pursuing criminal charges against the L.A. Times reporter. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Southern California held its 14th annual Orange County Crime Victims Rally. Elected officials and families gathered to honor both victims and survivors of crime. NTD's Cynthia Kai reports. On April 25th, a crowd of community members, elected officials and law enforcement gathered to honor victims and survivors alike of violent crime. They heard stories from families of a spouse, sibling, or child that were murdered as far back as 1977. We have victims who passed, and we have victims who are alive today, like Lynette or Patricia, who have to live with the grief every single day. It is our responsibility to acknowledge them and to fight for them. 
and to keep them in our presence. The annual rally brings awareness and continues to fight for victims' rights. And I have to share my voice not only as a survivor but a community leader. And I have to be able to call on our elected officials to be able to fund law enforcement, to be able to fund district attorneys, to be able to empower and strengthen our community members that are out there sac sacrificing day in and day out for victims and survivors and to keep us safe. A son recalled the difficulty of losing his father. When we lost my father, I felt like I couldn't grieve because I had to be strong for my mother, my brother and sister. I had to arrange my father's funeral at the age of 25, which is something that I never imagined doing. His father, Elio Gramajo, was killed while working his food truck when he was accidentally caught in a rival gang shootout on Father's Day in 2016. I miss my father. I love him. Although trial was very difficult, it helped me grieve. And it's not exactly closure, but it is a relief to know that the killer will pay for what he did. Another attendee was Lynette Duncan, whose father and 18-year-old sister were killed in 1977. Duncan said it took her little sister over three decades to gain the strength to write her statement recounting the incident. 38 years later, she finally wrote her victim impact statement to be read at one of the parole hearings. And in it, she started out by saying, that's the day that I learned that monsters were real and daddies don't always kill them. It broke all our hearts hearing that. The Crime Victims Monument sits between the offices of the Orange County District Attorney and Sheriff's Department. Cynthia Kai, NTD News, California. Southern California's water wholesaler took emergency action in response to the regional drought. It's imposing unprecedented restrictions that will limit outdoor watering to one day per week for roughly six million people. NTD's Eileen Ang reports. On Wednesday, officials of the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, or MWD, said it will impose water restrictions on its member agencies that are heavily dependent on supplies from the state water project. The amount of water we have available to us now is not going to be enough to carry us through the entire year unless we do something different. All Southern California residents and businesses will need to slash water usage by 30 percent to combat drought conditions. The state once again saw below average rain and snowfall for the year. According to the MWD, the once-a-week watering restriction will impact about 6 million people in Los Angeles, Ventura, and San Bernardino counties. We know what this means to communities. We know what we are requiring here, but we're facing a challenge. We have not have the supply to meet the normal demands that we have. And now we need to prioritize between watering our lawns or having water for our children and grandchildren and livelihood and health. Those implementing the restriction can decide which day of the week and those who have an odd or even house number. Exceptions include hand-watering trees. The district's board approved the measure Tuesday, but it is scheduled to take effect June 1st. Those who fail to comply will be fined. And if we don't see the cutbacks or conditions do not get better, Metropolitan Board has given me the authority to ban all 
watering as soon as September 1st. Governor Gavin Newsom last month directed MWD and other water suppliers statewide to ramp up conservation efforts by advancing water shortage contingency plans. Coming up, a foreigner is driven insane amid the Shanghai lockdown, trying to break through barriers and shouting he wants to die. How did authorities respond? That and more when we return on NTD News. Nation Speaks, we don't just scratch the surface. We want to go wide and deep. Our viewers come away with a much richer understanding of the issues of the day. We really make a big effort to bring on different voices onto the show. We don't just talk to experts and newsmakers, which of course are extremely important, but we also want to hear from the American people. So the people who are impacted by the policies and issues that we're talking about, because what they have to say is just as important to the national conversation. Outside Beijing, another of China's major cities is still grappling with high infection rates. Shanghai has been making headlines for weeks with extended lockdown orders causing problems for residents like food shortages. But other issues are coming to light too, and locals are getting fed up with the harsh restrictions. A video posted on Tuesday shows a foreigner collapsing on the street. Rumors say he's French, though NTD cannot verify his nationality. The video shows a group of Dubai, the white gear-wearing workers also seen in Beijing, trying to get the man under control. That's after he attempted to break through barriers set up nearby in order to escape the area. Visibly under stress, he shouts repeatedly in Chinese, I'm going to die. He then repeats a similar phrase in English, saying, I want to die. A woman behind the camera can be heard saying, drag him inside. The Dubai workers soon bring the man back within the now-fallen barriers. At that point, one of them tells him, you are in China. You should obey Chinese laws. Do you get it? Seconds later, the man again struggles to break free from their grip, shouting, I want to die. No one cares. Then the woman behind the camera directs the Dubai to hold him down on the ground. But as soon as the Dubai workers let go of him, he immediately jumps up and makes a break for the barrier again. One of the Dubai is heard calling the man a psycho. Prompting the man to again shout that he wants to die. Responding to him, one of the Dubai workers says, if you want to die, you can't die here. Almost all tweets sharing the video claim the man is French. He also speaks French in the video. We reached out to the French embassy in Beijing, but did not hear back before airtime. As Hong Kong's Foreign Correspondents Club canceled its Human Rights Press Awards over fears it could violate the national security law, a new report details how press freedom in Hong Kong has been almost completely dismantled. Advocacy group Hong Kong Watch launched its report at an event in Parliament on Tuesday night. NTD's Jane Werrell was at the launch and sent us this report. 
Once a beacon of press freedom in Asia, media freedom in Hong Kong has now been described as being almost completely dismantled. Here in the UK Parliament, advocacy group Hong Kong Watch launched a report on Tuesday night about the crackdown on media in the city. Shadow Minister for Asia Catherine West says concerns over Hong Kong are shared by MPs across the political spectrum. Both the um, subtle forms of self-censorship, which have been going on, but also the more extreme forms of shutting down media organisations, the treatment of Jimmy Lai, who of course led the uh, Apple Daily, and a number of other independent journalism uh, organisations, which of course um, in a, um, a country like Hong Kong are so important for you know, cultural life, for business, for society, so that it can function properly to have what's called the fourth estate, so that we have that press freedom. Um, and how, have, how has the press freedom changed in Hong Kong over the last few years? Well, there's been a crackdown on uh, students, on journalists, on uh, trade unionists, and on a number of other human rights activists, people who want to tell the story of how Hong Kong is changing, but not always for the better. Chief Executive of Hong Kong Watch, Benedict Rogers, wrote the report launched in Parliament called In the Firing Line, the Crackdown on Media Freedom in Hong Kong. The report draws from interviews with 10 different journalists in exile. A particularly extreme example of censorship mentioned in the report is about a pro-democracy district councillor whose ear was bitten off when he was attacked in 2019. While there were photos and footage that showed the attack, when presenter Chris Wong at the broadcaster TVB went to present the news, his script told a different story. Wong told Hong Kong Watch, the script that the editor provided said that Mr Chu's ear fell off naturally somehow. Nobody did anything, it was not a bite, and the ear just fell to the floor. The editors did not want to cover violence by pro-Beijing blue supporters. Matthew Leung, a former reporter with the Ming Pao newspaper, says he was shot with pepper balls while on the front lines in Hong Kong. I don't see a future being a journalist in Hong Kong anymore because there will be there is censorship, there will be more even more censorship. So it's not a place to have a career anymore. I I don't want to uh, self-censor myself at work. So uh, either way, I'm switching career. I have to. Why don't I go to a uh, free place to do it and even as a former journalist I think I have the duty to, to tell others, tell the world what happened in Hong Kong because uh, reporters in Hong Kong now they have to in fear, they're in fear of the national security law I think uh, it's difficult for them to voice out Like many Hong Kongers, he's come to the UK via a special visa route and in the long term hopes to become a journalist again. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. In France, President Emmanuel Macron received a warm welcome during his first public appearance since his re-election, except for one incident when he was attacked with cherry tomatoes. According to a conservative policy analyst, the election results show France becoming polarized with patriots and nationalists on one side and leftists or liberals on the other. We've got more from NTD's France correspondent, David Vives. French President Emmanuel Macron, fresh off his election victory, is already back on the campaign trial, ahead of June's parliamentary vote. During his first public appearance since his re-election, locals were excited to see him in a left-leaning suburb of Paris. But at one point, 
His security personnel unfolded an umbrella to protect him from attacks with cherry tomatoes. A few days after the presidential election, there are several takes on Macron's victory. Though Macron comfortably defeated his opponent, an analysis shows only 38% of registered voters voted for him. That makes him the worst elected French president for over 50 years. This is due to a low mobilization of voters. At the same time, Macron was ahead in France's 12 largest cities. In Paris, 85% of residents voted for him. It's an outcome that reinforces his reputation of being a president of big towns, whereas in rural area, his opponent Marine Le Pen was ahead. It is also rural France that saw the rise of the Yellow Vest movement. According to conservative publisher and policy analyst Pierre-Yves Rougeron, there is a notable polarization in French society. That is to say that we are entering into an increasingly radical fragmentation of the population, which can be seen on a map. That is to say, in the areas where Macron came out on top, people support him even more, whereas the patriots' areas are more patriotic than before. Polling data shows the majority of seniors voted for Macron. Almost all political parties called on their supporters to vote for him in order to block nationalist Le Pen. And Rougeron says that the nationalist parties cannot match the financial support Macron's party has received. Macron, il a les sponsors. Et les sponsors, on les aura jamais. Macron has sponsors. We will never have them. Because the French upper class is not the American upper class. In contrast to the US or England, the French upper class would rather sell the country out than serve it. Rougeron says Macron did not score well considering the support he received from other parties and media outlets. Là, Emmanuel, Macron a... Emmanuel Macron had the support of the traitors of the Republican Party, the power of the media, of the whole system. Despite all this, he only performed at 58%. So as I said, it's no longer a strong system, it's a heavy system, which is not quite the same thing. Macron, as well as nationalist and leftist candidates, will fight to get ahead in the parliamentarian elections in June. A majority for his party in parliament will be crucial for the newly elected president to get his bills approved. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Coming up, a rare violin will soon be up for auction in Paris. It was made in 1736 and owned by a famous French violinist. We'll take a look in just a moment. And the film industry's returning to normal. We've got a list of blockbusters headed to the theaters this summer. That and more when we return on NTD News. A rare violin is going up for auction. It was crafted by a famed Italian in 1736 and will be sold in a Paris suburb this June. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the story. This flamed maple-backed violin is one of only approximately 150 made by Italian luthier Giuseppe Guarneri, whose output was relatively limited compared to his contemporary Antonio Stradivari. So to be able to sell one at an auction house like ours is a great source of pride. There are lots of violins, but this one is the equivalent of selling a Rembrandt, a Goya, or even a Leonardo da Vinci painting. Among violins, this one is exceptional. 
Crafted at the height of Guarneri's career, it was bought by violinist Regis Pasquier more than 20 years ago in a fairy tale encounter between musician and instrument. It's only 351 millimeters tall, this little thing, this little sound box, but it can be played in the biggest halls in the world, and that's what Regis Pasquier was immediately very happy about. He told us that when he was buying it, he chose from a room full of a dozen or so violins, and he chose this one. The violin had an exceptional sound, and it filled large concert halls from Carnegie Hall in New York to the Opera Garnier in Paris, with its last concert being just a few months ago. What's unique about this violin is that it's been played even very recently. It belongs to Regis Pasquier, who's a great violinist. It doesn't belong to a collector who's left it in a trunk and allowed it to be played now and then. The violin will be auctioned on June 3rd after a three-day exhibition, and its estimated value is between $4.2 million and $4.7 million. But the instrument could sell for up to $10.5 million. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Movie theater operators are becoming more optimistic that their business is finally heading toward normal. A handful of blockbusters will hit the big screen this summer. Let's take a look. Wanda, what do you know about the multiverse? Viz had his theories. He believed it was dangerous. He was right. A handful of big-budget sequels are expected to help rebuild the summer box office this year. One of them is Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, which will be released on May 6th. The story is part of Phase 4 of Marvel Cinematic Universe and will take place a few months after the events of Spider-Man No Way Home. We should tell him the truth. Remember what I told you. You ever feel lost? Just look into the eyes of the people that you love. Not me. Just listening. And this won't be the only Marvel movie this summer. Thor Love and Thunder, which will be the fourth movie in the series, will premiere on July 8th. There's a Your personal companion role. Animated Pixar movie Lightyear will be the spin-off of the Toy Story series. The movie is set to explore the origin of Buzz Lightyear, and it will hit the silver screen on July 17th. That was utterly terrifying, and I regret having joined you. Buzz! Lightyear! Let all the children do another plane, right? Not exactly. Yet another big sequel this summer will be Jurassic World Dominion. This will be the sixth installment of the Jurassic Park franchise and the final film in the Jurassic World trilogy. You can watch it in the movie theaters beginning June 10th. Don't, Don't move. Bigger. Why do they always have to go bigger? A special rescue operation unfolded off the coast of Southern California. It was to save a stranded baby eagle that had been accidentally kicked out of its nest. On a cliff on Catalina Island, an, 
adult bald eagle flew away from its nest without noticing that one of its talons had caught on its child. The eaglet tumbled down the cliff and could be heard chirping helplessly. But fortunately, it landed safely a few feet below the nest. Scientists from the Institute for Wildlife Studies spotted the accident on a webcam. They hiked to the nest to rescue the baby bird. Footage shows a rescuer climbing down the cliff anchored by a safety harness. He placed the bird in a bag and finally brought it back to the nest. Caring rescuers also added wooden sticks to the nest to prevent another accident. While waiting for the elder eagle to return, the eaglet seemed to pose for a photo being taken by a rescuer, as if saying thanks to them. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.